We invite the children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. <clears throat> and as our kids are being dismissed, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Say a little prayer that my voice holds up. I think I am attacked by allergies. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Those of you who are members of the church, a reminder that uh, Tuesday, June 10th is our annual business meeting. So if you're a member of the church, we expect you to be there and participate in uh, the electing of our officers and leadership decisions for the coming year. Proverbs chapter 3, and we're in verses 9 and 10 this morning in our study in Proverbs. This morning... um, Talk about a subject that's a little bit difficult, a little bit perhaps uncomfortable. Uh, I, I want to address the topic of giving financially, and specifically from Proverbs, giving to a local church or a local congregation, or, or tithing, you may want to put it that way. Although technically, right, there's a difference between giving and tithing. I mean, they're not exactly synonymous. Giving just means to give. Tithing means to specifically give us a tenth or ten percent of a certain portion of uh, resources. But whether you want to call it giving to a local church or tithing, it's just not a popular topic. Uh, This is not something that's like, oh boy, I want to go hear a sermon on that necessarily. Um, And and I think there's a number of reasons that it's difficult. There's a number of reasons why we as Americans just perhaps don't give the way that we could or should. From the statistics I saw online as I was researching this and, and uh, clicking around the Internet, I found that on average, I guess Americans as a whole, give around 2.5 to 3% of their income every year for charity. I mean, I don't know how that strikes you. That, that just seems really low to me. I'm like, I'm sure I spend more than that on personal entertainment every year. You know? I mean, think about our nation and the resources we have. And why is that? So why is that a difficult topic? Why are we so lax in giving as a people in some ways? And I think there's a number of reasons. Sometimes it's just we're in difficult financial times. And when you're trying to figure out how to make the mortgage payments and every month you find yourself in the red instead of the black, you know, the last question on your mind is, hey, how can I increase my giving to local charities in my local church? That's just not how you're thinking. What you're thinking is, well, if I get myself together and get on my feet, then I will someday do that, and I want to do that, but down the road someday, and it always seems to be down the road someday. Um, I think another reason is we simply have so many choices in this country of things we could give to. There are countless, it seems, uh, worthy causes and charities springing from worthy motivations and people saying to you, you know, for just $100, for just $50, for just $1,000, you could support this or give food to that. And, And sometimes when you're so overwhelmed with charitable choices, you, you kind of just go into fibrillation, right? You're like, I don't know what to do. Uh, and we don't end up not doing anything as a result. Uh, I, I think another reason, perhaps, that uh, people have difficulty with giving today is that there's a real cynicism in our culture, especially younger generations, toward institutions. The, the people, it's not like my grandparents' generation. You know, my grandparents' generation, they, they believed in the institutions of the nation. You know, if you were a Lutheran, you were a Lutheran. And you gave to the Lutheran church. And if you were an Elks in the Elks Lodge, you were an Elk. 
And you gave to the elks. You know, there's a, a sense of commitment to things. But today, in many circles, there's a distrust of government and uh, unions and churches and other kinds of large institutions. And as a result, people are not as prone to give in that way. Uh, instead, I think what happens today is people tend to give to causes that they feel personally connected to. You know, I know a certain person is doing something and I'm going to help that person. Or I'm concerned about a certain cause that intersects with my life and I will help that cause. And so as a result, I, I think that will have a tendency over time to reduce the amount and the intensity with which we give. Because if I just sort of have to wait for something to move me, it's not going to be the same as if I say, look, I'm committed to a certain institution, I'm going to give that way. Uh, which probably leads to, I think, an underlying sort of spirit or, or mood in which we find ourselves as a people. And that is that we're a consumerized people. We've become consumers. And in a, a consumeristic worldview, the consumer is king. The consumer is in charge. The consumer is the boss. And the consumer must be convinced whether or not he or she should give up her resources for a certain product. And I think implicit in that is the idea that when I purchase a product, it has to do something for me that I want it to do. And I, I think that even though we may not say it explicitly, that's got to be part of the thinking that goes into giving today. Is people are like, well, what is this going to do for me? How is this going to affect me? How is this going to improve my life or my personal experience or, or whatever? <clears throat> and clearly that is going to demotivate giving because we're, we're standing back saying, all right, show me, show me, instead of saying, no, I have a responsibility to do something. So for all of those reasons and probably more, I, I think that giving is uh, a difficult topic. It's a challenging topic today. Let me just ask you this rhetorical question. But for those of you who are regular attenders or members of Sasha Rappers, I'm not talking about, this is your first Sunday here, you know, you, you don't have to listen to this. But those of us who, for who would call Sasha Baptist our church home, do you give regularly and intentionally to the ministry of this church or not? I, is, is that something that you've thought about? Or is it like, you know, that offering plate starts coming towards you and you're like, oh, gee, you know, wallet, $10, you know, disaster averted. Or have you sat down and thought about it? Or if you're married, talked to your spouse and said, look, we, we need to think about what we're going to give and we're going to give consistently every week or every quarter or however you end up doing it. Right? Have you thought that through? Um, and so why would somebody do that? <laughs> you know, in a culture where gas is now $4 a gallon, I spent 75 bucks to fill up my car last week. I was like, what in the world? Um, you know? And, and, and in a society where we've shifted from institutional loyalty to a culture of personal fulfillment and personal expression, like why would somebody give consistently and intentionally to a local congregation? It just doesn't make as much sense today. Well, here in Proverbs chapter 3, we, we've been in Proverbs and we've been looking at the issues of wealth in Proverbs. And here in Proverbs chapter 3, I want to look at the fundamental motivation for Christian giving. The main reason that we as Christians should give. We could talk a lot about this topic of giving. This could be a whole sermon series. Chris Hemrick just finished a Sunday school series on giving and money. It was great. But, but, but you know, I, I don't have that kind of time to go into all that. So let me sort of go for the jugular this morning. And let's just get down to the critical issue when it comes to understanding giving. That if you can understand this motivation and why we as followers of Christ would want to give and feel an obligation to give, if you can get this, I'm telling you, giving just flows so naturally. 
And conversely, if we don't get this, then giving will always be legalistic for you. That giving will always be a duty and a dreary obligation where you check off the box and say, okay, trying to be a good Christian, check, I gave some money. That's not what it should be. It should be joyful. But it all comes from the right motivation and understanding why we're called to give of our resources in the Scripture. And I think it's so beautifully stated, so simply stated in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, where it says in chapter 3, verse 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Why should we give? What is the motivation for us as Christians? It's that we're trying to honor the Lord specifically with our wealth. That word honor in uh, Hebrew is kabod. It's, uh, the noun means glory. We talk about the glory of God. It's the kabod of, of Yahweh, the, the glory of Yahweh. Uh, and when it's a verb, it means to honor or to glorify. So, so really giving, biblically understood at its root, must be a joyful response, a glad reaction to who God is. That as I see who God is, and as I I stand in awe of Him, my natural response is to say, it's yours. Everything I have, everything that I am. I I respond joyfully to my Creator. And specifically, I think there's three aspects of God's character that bring forth this response of giving. Number one, that He's the Creator, the Maker. Therefore, number two, He's the Owner. And number three, He's the Giver. He made it all. He owns it all. And He gives as He pleases. And when we come to realize that, when we're humbled before a Creator, when when we're decentered from this sort of postmodern idea that I'm the center of meaning, and it's like, no, God is the center, and I'm just the creation, held together by His grace moment by moment. It does something to your soul, and it humbles me, and it humbles us. And we respond by honoring God, by giving resources back to him. Let's just see how this kind of plays out in the scriptures a little bit. Let me just pick a few for instances from the Bible. Let me ask you this. Here's a Bible pop quiz. When's the first tithe in the Bible? Anyway, shout it out. (laughs) Who's the first tithe in the Bible? Abraham. Thank you. Abraham. Put a bookmark here. Let's look at Abraham. In Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 14. Genesis 14. That was good. Whoever gave that right answer, you don't have to tithe this week. That's your bonus. Okay. Genesis 14. First book of the Bible. Okay, so just background. Real quick background. Abram has a, uh, a nephew named Lot. Lot gets captured by bad guys. Abram gets a posse. They go whoop the bad guys. In doing so, they get a lot of loot and plunder. And now it's a story about what Abram's going to do with the loot and plunder he gets from beating the bad guys. That's my little uh, uh, cliff notes on chapter 14. So look at verse 18 of chapter 14. This strange character emerges from the shadows into the narrative, and then he recedes into the shadows, and we never really hear from him again until the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. His name is Melchizedek. So here's Abram with this huge pile of plunder. And it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, 
And he blessed Abram. So we have this guy. He's a priest of God. How did he become priest? How did that work? I don't know. He's this mysterious figure. And he comes out and he blesses Abram. Look what he says. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything. So isn't that interesting? Notice the content of the blessing. He says he's God Most High. In other words, he's the ruler, the owner. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be most God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, Abram, the reason you have this pile of treasure that you just won is because God gave you the victory. He's the maker. He's the owner. He's the giver. And so as Abram is struck by this revelation of God's character and who God is, what is his natural response? He gives. He honors God with his wealth. To use Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 language. Isn't that interesting? Or let's turn uh, to uh, a few books over to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, page 195, Deuteronomy chapter 26. There are a number of Old Testament passages that describe the command to tithe for the people of Israel. This is one of them. What's interesting about this passage is not only does it command the Israelites to tithe, but it kind of describes the ritual that they're supposed to go through. There's a little liturgy that's associated with this. There's something people are supposed to do. You don't just go and give the tithe. You, you give it in a certain way. And notice what happens. You, give, you bring your tithe to the, the tabernacle, later the temple. You give it to the priest. And then look at verse 5 of chapter 26. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God. This is what you have to say when you give your tithe. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place, here we go, and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, here's in the liturgy, I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. God, you did this. It is yours and you've given it to me. <clears throat> Place the basket before the Lord your God and get this bow down before Him. It, what would happen if during the offering here, some person like dropped a tithe envelope in the, the plate and then suddenly got out of their pew and bowed down on the carpet? We'd be like, is that guy okay? He must have gave more than he wanted to. Wow, he's really bothered. You know, what's wrong with him? You know, imagine if we actually bowed down. That's the idea though. When we come to recognize that everything I have is from God, it should humble us. That, that, that the amount I give to God belongs to God. The amount I keep belongs to God. The breath that keeps my body animated so that I can write the check belongs to God. As it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it including you and me. You know, we're owned, we're owned by God. Um, my, my son asked me an interesting question a couple weeks ago. He looked at me and he said, he goes, Dad, do you own me? And I was like, darn right. No, I was like, uh, 
I was like, that's, he, he just, he's good at asking interesting questions. I was like, I've never thought about that. I said, no, I don't own you. I, I said, I, I'm, I'm responsible for you and I love you and I have a stewardship, is maybe the way you put it. I said, well, you know, God owns you. God owns me. God owns people who don't believe in God. He owns everything. And when we see that, it should humble us. And there's a response of giving over to God as a way of honoring and glorifying Him and saying, I don't trust in this money. Yeah, God, you've given it to me. My trust is in you. Or just one more, for instance. Let's turn to the last book of the Bible. Let's flash forward and flash upward to the book of Revelation. Chapters 4. Chapter 4 and 5 really are one sort of image. I wish I had time to preach on this. This is so great. Chapter 4 of Revelation is an image of the heavenly worship around the throne of God. Chapter 4 has God on His throne. Surrounding God are these living creatures. They're kind of, basically kind of angelic beings worshiping and praising God. And then around the living creatures praising God are the 24 elders, which I, I think in Revelation are simply a symbol for the people of God. You know, there's 24 interesting, like the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. You know, Re- Revelation is a very symbolic book. And, and so I, that, that's at least the way I take it is they, they symbolize the people of God in the presence of God worshiping Him. And so here they are gathered around the throne. And notice what happens in the worship. Look at verse 8. It says, whenever these angels, these living creatures, they, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Get this, whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, which I think represents God's, the people of God, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And get this, they lay their crowns before the throne. Their crowns go down. It's yours. And they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. You're the Maker. By your will they were created and have their being. They're sustained by you. So it appears that when God's people have a clear vision of His majesty and greatness, the natural and instinctive response is to bow down and offer Him everything. As you know when you've encountered the glory of God, when it humbles you in worship, and you say, it's yours, and we respond even by giving things. You know, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. I think it's easy to stand and sing. We can give God our praise in singing, especially when you have great music like this, great instrumentalists. I mean, you just get caught up in it. It's just great music. But that's another matter altogether when I have to actually give of my resources to the work of God and to the Lord. I mean, now it's like, hmm, do I really believe this? But when we have a vision of who God is, when we see Him, we want to honor Him. We want to find ways to glorify and magnify Him. And that includes our substance and our wealth. So if you're struggling with giving... And you're like, I don't know, I, I, I know I should, and I don't do it enough, and I want to, and how do I get started? Or, or it's just an issue where the, the, you just don't feel like you're getting traction in your Christian life for whatever reason or another. May I say that, that the way to get started is not to look at your finances. That's the second step. The first thing we have to do is to get a bigger vision of who God is. 
May I suggest that the first step isn't to open your checkbook book at all, but to open up your Bible and go to those passages in the Bible where the greatness and majesty of God is most clearly displayed and meditate on it. Or, or go out for a walk at Duxbury Beach or you know, wherever you go to see beauty. You know, walk up Mount Blue or go up to the White Mountains, whatever. Go someplace beautiful and sit around and look at this world that God has given us as a gift and recognize that He owns it all. And let the magnitude of that just crush your pride and self-sufficiency and revel in His goodness and His awesomeness. Or, or if you're a journaling type, I don't journal, I don't get journaling, but some people really like to journal. So if that's who you are, get your little journal out, you know, <laughs> and get your pen. And I just want you to list, list the blessings of God in your life. Just start writing them down one by one, listing them. What has God done for me? And just everything, not just finance, it's your whole life. And as we, we grow in our awe and reverence for our Creator, I'm telling you that, that if we're believers, it should spur and stir our hearts toward giving. And that then we can start looking at the actual practicalities of giving. But it's got to come from the right motive. Otherwise, it'll always be a legalism. It'll always be a dry obligation. And, and it won't be the right thing. It needs to be an act of worship. That is, by the way, why we like to pass offering plates in the worship service. It's not the only way to collect money as a church. You can put boxes out in the foyer. Nothing wrong with that either. There's a lot of different ways to do it. But we choose, at least in our church, to do it that way so that we're reminding ourselves that it's worship. That it's just as much worship as hearing God's word and singing a hymn and praying a prayer. That, that we're, in a very tangible way, saying we want to honor God with our wealth. So let's kind of get practical, if I could just kind of turn a corner here. How do we do this, practically speaking? And specifically, I'd like to address the, probably the two most common questions I hear as a pastor about giving when it gets down to practicalities. The, you know, the FAQs, frequently asked questions about tithing. How is this supposed to work? And, and I believe that if we have the right motivation as a joyful response to the glory of God, that it will kind of answer those two questions as well. So here's the two questions. Number one is, to whom should I give? Like, how do you give to God? You know, do you just take your money and throw it up in the air like, here it is? You know, like, what does that mean to give to God? Where is God? And, uh, and can I give to all kinds of things? If I give to uh, the, the Boys and Girls Club or the kids who are out front of the supermarket raising money for the band, and I see them and I say, Hey, God, I want to glorify you and I'm going to give charitably to this cause. Is that giving to God? I mean, how is it supposed to work? Um, does it have to be to a church? How does it work? And I guess what I would say is, you know, I would encourage you to give generously and to give liberally to all kinds of causes and all kinds of activities, but to always keep a priority and emphasis upon your local church first. And I believe that's the biblical pattern. Um, you know, you look in the Old Testament. God commands them to give. How do they do it? Well, they give to the priests and they give to the poor in the community of Israel. So when the Israelite brings his, uh, his gift, his tithe, his offerings, and by the way, the Israelites did more than just tithe. Tithe was just the baseline for the Israelites. 
in addition to that, there were burnt offerings, there were guilt offerings, there were free will offerings, something he just wanted to give. There were vows that they made and fulfilled. There were uh, offerings to the poor. They collected money to build the tabernacle. They collected money to build the temple. So, you know, the tithe is just the baseline for Israel. It was built in to be a very generous kind of people. <clears throat> and But when they brought that tithe, what did they do with it? They brought it to the priests and the Levites. And that tithe was to be used in part to support the work of God in the ministry. They also gave it to the poor in Israel, the widows and orphans who didn't have family to support them. And so that's the pattern we see, that they glorified God by giving it to the people and the priests upon whom God had set His name. God had set His name and His glory on a specific people. In a specific place. And so they gave to God by giving to those upon whom he said his name. When we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we find the very same thing. That in the New Testament, we're commanded to give. And specifically, it's to two groups. One is to those who have the work of the gospel, and which I would see as uh, the local church and its ministry of gospel proclamation as well as missionaries. And then second, the poor and needy in the local congregation. And when you look in the New Testament, you see the same pattern. Uh, look with me at Second um, or First Corinthians chapter nine. It's on page eleven thirty-four. Since we're in the New Testament, let's just take a detour over to First Corinthians chapter nine. First Corinthians chapter nine is an extended argument in part about the rights of an apostle and the rights of a gospel minister. But look what he says in First Corinthians nine thirteen. Paul says, page eleven fifty-four, thirty-four. Sorry. 1 Corinthians 9.13, he says, Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So there's a direct analogy made between the Old Testament priesthood and its support and the gospel ministry, which I would see as the local church and missionaries, supporting the work of the gospel through God's church. Likewise, in the New Testament, we see concern for the poor in giving. So, so there needs to be, I believe, a priority upon the local church. This is where God is moving. This is where God's kingdom is today. Can we give to other things? Yes, and that's great if we do. But you know, let's be really clear about this. The Red Cross does not have the name of God upon it. And the women's shelter is a wonderful thing, and I hope we support things like that, but it is not the bride of Christ. And, and the other charities that we're concerned about are wonderful things, but it's not the blood-bought people of God. And then for all eternity, those charities, charities will disappear, but the church will endure. That Jesus said, you know, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because the Red Cross is a wonderful organization, but it will never proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel that people need most. This is the unique contribution of the church. The message that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners through His death on the cross. And that is what God has given the church. The most important thing people need today, more than food, clothing, and shelter, we need salvation from our sins. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And charities can give you the whole world. It's wonderful things. I'm not 
please understand, I'm not demeaning them in any way, but I'm saying we have a unique calling with the gospel that I believe has priority in our lives. And so I, I think, yeah, give to all kinds of things, but give to your local church first, um, which, is, which is where God has put his name. I, I believe there is an infection within evangelicalism today. There's a, there's a parasite, and it's the parasite of para-Christianity. You know, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a church goer, I'm a para-Christian. Right? I, I don't need church. When I play golf with my three buddies, we talk about Jesus, that's my church. And my small group Bible study is my church. No, it's not. <laughs> you may call it that, but it's completely out of line with what Scripture teaches. That the church is a unique thing that God has set up. And for some reason, there's this kind of church bashing mentality today, even among evangelicals. You know, that would be like, that'd be like if... You know, we, we say we love Jesus, but we don't like the church. That'd be like if I came to you and I, was, I said, look, man, I really love you. You're a great guy. I, I, I would do anything for you. I love you. But you know, your wife, what a witch. <laughs> I hate your wife. I don't even want to talk to her. I, I wish I could just hang out with you and forget your wife. So we say, oh, I love Jesus. I'm so committed. I'm a Jesus freak. I'm so into Jesus, but I don't need the church. Like, Christ died for the church. This is the New Testament. I, I want to just say to people, like, have you read the New Testament? It's like all about churches and not the church universal, which is how we usually refer to it. When we talk about the church, we usually mean all Christians everywhere, and that's true. But the Bible is always talking about local congregations. And so I, I just think that what I think is happening is that we're being infected with the worldview of consumerism, that we have imbibed the spirit of our time with its hyper-autonomy and I can, you know, send my kids to a youth group over here, and I go to a women's or men's Bible study at that church. But this church has good preaching Sunday morning, but that church has good preaching or music Sunday night. And so I'm like everywhere. Well, you know, I, I'm a really open-minded Christian because I go to like five different places. And I'm like, where's your commitment to a church? Not that you can't go to other things. You know what I'm saying? You get this? But that God's local church is a priority, and giving to a local church is a priority. And I would challenge you to refute me biblically otherwise. This is the pattern we see in the New Testament. Well, this raises the next question, which is, that people usually ask is, okay, how much do I give then, right? <clears throat> is it 2%? Is it 10%? What, what are you supposed to give? And then the, the other question I always get is, is now is that before? <laughs> okay, you have thought of this. <laughs> or after taxes, right? I've, I've been asked that so many times. And... Um, well, you know, again, we look at the Old Testament, we see clear instructions on what to give, 10% and certain offerings and things. When we come to the New Testament, there is not an explicit command in the New Testament to give a tithe. We do not find that. What we do find are com uh, repeated commands to generosity, to be large-hearted in our giving. And let me just show you one. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Flip over one book. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. One of the clearest passages on teaching in the New Testament. Paul says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. So the command is be generous. You know, it's 2.6% generous. I don't know. Talk amongst yourselves. Strikes me as not very generous. I don't know. Okay, talk about that over lunch. 
Verse 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, this must be a joyous worship response to the person of God, not a, a legalistic check-the-box-off obligation. And if the motivation isn't right, then the action doesn't matter. It's got to be responding to who God is. Otherwise, you know, keep your money till you get that part figured out, and then give joyously. As, as you've determined. So notice there's a, an intentionality to it. We need to sit down as families and say, what do we want to give to the Lord? Let's pray about it and see what the Lord would lead. And to give generously. And then verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God will care for you. He'll provide for you in so many different ways. <clears throat> so the answer is from the New Testament, give generously, give intentionally. Uh, Having said that, I would commend the tithe to you as a great benchmark. Uh, you know, I'll just, I'll just be sort of candid about what I do in this. And I'm not doing this to brag or to say that it's the right way, but just to kind of give you what one Christian does. Not even as your pastor telling you to do it, but just like I'm as Christian to Christian. Here's what my wife and I do. We, we give a tithe to this congregation before taxes. Because <laughs> we figure, you know, it's still, I earn the money even if the government snatches too much from me I still earn the money and so I need to tie that to the Lord and, and that's what we've decided to do um, and then on, in addition to that you know we give to some other missionaries and people and charitable things that, that come up at different times so that, that's kind of what we do um, and it's been a really good thing you know 10% is just good for me because if you're not really focused on numbers you're not an accountant anyone can move the decimal point right so 10% I can do that calculation that's easy uh, I can understand 10%. And what I find, at least for my own self, is that if I don't commit to a certain percentage on a certain regular basis, I just won't do it. I'll be really well-intentioned, but at the end of the year, when I find out how, many actually, how much I actually gave, I'll suddenly find myself at 2%. And I'll be like, oh, how'd that happen? I meant to do more. I intended to do more. What happened? Well, so I didn't commit myself. So that, that's I found works out in my own life. I believe some of us here should be aiming for 20%. 30%, 50%. Some of us here, if, if we gave away 50% of our income and just lived on the other 50%, we'd still be living really well. You know? And I'm not saying give it necessarily to our church. Make that a priority, but give to all kinds of things. God has blessed you with resources to be a blessing to others. Um, or, or let me put it this way. Like, what could we do as a church for the gospel if every regular attender and member of this church committed to tithing? I wonder what we could do. That's exciting to me. We've got a lot of things to do, people. You know? We've got churches to plant. That takes money. We need to, have, we need to start a church planting fund. And we can pay for church planters to come in, hang out with us for a year, and then lead a group of people off and start planting some churches in all the towns around here. We need more churches in Hingham, let alone other towns. Right? You know? I, I would love to see us buy up maybe a couple houses and, and start a fund for interns. And so guys coming out of seminary who have the seminary education but don't have the real church experience yet will say, come with us for a year or two years and, and you know, you can live in a house and we'll give you a stipend and we'll take care of you and maybe we'll get some cheap labor, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, <clears throat> but really, I say, come, we'll teach you and you'll work here and we'll train you and then we'll send you off. And so that we're starting to 
spread the gospel that way. Or maybe we have pastor's conferences. I mean, all those are great things. Maybe God has blessed you with resources and those things excite you. And, and you're like, I want to give a tithe, but if I just gave a flat-out tithe to the church budget, it would be like this huge thing. Well, then find, let's find other funds and ways to use that creatively. But what if we all tithe? What could we do? Or maybe the better question is, if we all were to choose to tithe, what would God do? Not only through us, but maybe even more importantly, in us, in our own hearts. What would God do? Because what I see again and again in, in these passages on giving is both the command to give and then the promise of great blessing upon those who do give. Do you have to be careful with that? Yes. I think that's misused by a lot of prosperity preachers to say, if you give $50 to this TV program, the Lord's going to give you $1,000 this year. You know, all that garbage. You know, just turn the channel. But, but you know, I, I do believe that if we give, God blesses in all kinds of ways, not just financially. We've got to trust Him. What could God do? What would God do? Ultimately, <clears throat> I, I think we can sum all this up and look at it as with most things, through the lens of the cross. That when I look at the cross, it kind of brings it all together for me. Because when I look at Jesus, I see the one who is the greatest giver in the history of the universe. No one has ever outgiven Jesus. He gave up His glory at the Father's side. He took on humanity. Even from a human level, He had a job as a carpenter. He gave it up and went and became an itinerant preacher living on offerings. I mean, He gave it all. Talk about sell your possessions, give to the poor. Jesus did that. He just gave it and went. And he ultimately gave his life on the cross. He gave his blood, the, the precious blood of Christ given for vile sinners like me. No one's ever given like Jesus. And so when I think of the cross, it does two things to me. The first thing it does is it crushes my pride and my self-righteousness. And I say, oh, I have not even begun to give to the Lord. I have not even begun to recognize his goodness. I'm so humbled. I, I'm not righteous in and of myself. And that, of course, leads me to the second thing as I look to the cross and I say, oh, what an awesome Savior. It is only by Him, not by my giving, not by my tithing. It is only by His blood that I'm saved. And it is through the cross of Christ that I'm forgiven, redeemed, and even accorded the privilege of offering things to the Lord. And so look to the cross. If you're struggling with tithing, if you're struggling with giving, May I suggest that you begin with the cross of Jesus to go back to the basics. And may our hearts and minds be wowed and wooed once again with the greatness of our God and His Savior. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I pray for all of us that You would give us a renewed vision for your glory and your goodness, that God, we would most of all be a, a God-enraptured, Christ-enthralled church, that we would delight in the Holy Spirit, we would delight in who you are. And God, I pray that out of that, we would be people who would increasingly learn what it means to give of ourselves to others, and even to give of our finances, God, that we might not trust in idols, but would trust in you. Lord, I pray for everyone here, that you would challenge us all, Lord, uh, to give more. Maybe that's right now, or maybe that's a slow progress we're going to develop. But God, I just pray that you would move us to give financially, that, that our, our religion wouldn't just be talk and words, but that it would be action and tangible. 
And so, God, move in our midst, we pray, through the Holy Spirit. And we look forward to what you will do as we obey. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's close by singing to the Lord, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And let's give praise to the one who poured himself out generously so that we might have life and life everlasting.